Well, we've come a tremendous way. And in fact, one of the major global congresses on HIV this year was held in Berlin, which is a fitting location for the Congress because of the Berlin patient. So the Berlin patient is the first person to have been cured of HIV. The battle has now shifted from that battle against the virus to the battle against the social and political conditions that are causing HIV to still be something that spreads in many communities around the world and many markets around the world. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast. My name is Jennifer Curtis, and I'm your host. Since the first documented cases in 1981, HIV-AIDS has become a global epidemic, claiming over 30 million lives. But we've come a long way in understanding and managing HIV over the years. So in acknowledgement of World AIDS Day on December 1st, we wanted to look back at HIV and also look ahead at the future. Joining me in this discussion are two ZS Associates leaders working in the HIV space, Mark Saunders and Bill Coyle. Mark, Bill, welcome. Could you give us a brief introduction and your experience working in HIV? So, hey, everybody, my name is Mark Saunders. I'm a partner in our London office. And amongst a number of my responsibilities within the firm, um, I do a tremendous amount of work within HIV. And it's an area that I'm very passionate about, attending congresses um, and supporting our clients in helping to um, hopefully control and eventually eradicate the pandemic. Yes, hi, everyone. This is Bill Coyle. I'm a partner with ZS in our Zurich office and have worked across many specialty categories in the biopharma industry over the years but in particular have focused in HIV, serving, uh, serving a client for the past few years in a, a space I'm passionate about. So Mark, um, a ton of things have happened in HIV since the, the first case in 1980s. Where are we today? Well, we've come a tremendous way. And in fact, one of the major global congresses on HIV this year was held in Berlin, which is a fitting location for the Congress because of the Berlin patient. So the Berlin patient is the first person to have been cured of HIV following a transplant of HIV-resistant cells from a donor. Um, they unfortunately this year passed away from other um, issues, leukemia, um, but um, it shows the path that we've come on from the 1980s where HIV was quite clearly a, a death sentence to where we are today where it has the potential to be cured and potentially at scale eventually through things like gene therapy or prevented through vaccines. Um, and that journey has been a series of different antiretroviral treatments um, that have been built up to firstly prolong a patient's life. And now we've got to the point where a patient who has HIV can effectively live the same length of life and have the same quality of life as anyone who is who's not infected by the disease from a clinical perspective. There are still other issues that have to be challenged when it comes to having the disease, the stigma, the burden associated with the disease, transmitting it to people that might not have access to the same medicines um, and the burden that that places on them and then also the healthcare system. But we've come such a long, long way from a clinical perspective. Yeah, I mean, to your point, there have been so many therapies that have been developed and now it's, it's turned into a chronic management. So kind of looking ahead, like, how do you see HIV being managed in the future? Uh, Bill, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I think there's lots of exciting things in terms of where, um, where we're going scientifically uh, in HIV. 
I think thinking of patients who are at risk or people who are, are living at risk of HIV and also people living with HIV, there's lots of um, interesting developments. I think first and foremost, the potential to vaccinate people who are living at risk of HIV would be an amazing advancement. Uh, a safe, efficacious vaccine to avoid HIV would be an amazing development. And there are a number in development. Um, we're also seeing on the treatment side for people living with HIV, we're seeing a number of extended duration therapies and different modalities that help patients better tailor their treatment to their situation, the treatments that work best for them. I think it's worth saying the underlying treatments that are available today that patients have access to, or people living with HIV have access to, they are really very efficacious treatments. And as Mark said, are creating uh, for these uh, people living with HIV a, a normal length of life relative to, uh, to others without HIV. Um, another exciting development could be cures. So gene therapies or other cures that could, uh, for, for um, people infected with HIV, actually eradicating the virus and not having to have them on long-term treatment. So cures is another path that's, uh, that's quite exciting as well. I know the, the topic of cure is fascinating and brings up a, a whole bunch of questions about the implications of that. Um, Mark, do you have any, any thoughts on how that can be managed? Well, I think at the moment, we're quite a long way from a cure at scale. And so that's, that's sort of a, a question that we, we have to look at. I think the primary focus might be, if I think about the medications that are available today, if I get every single person who has HIV on their medication, irrespective of whether or not they are in a position to transmit the disease, if they are compliant on their medication, they will not be able to because the disease will be undetectable in their body. So if I can get to a level where I'm supporting the implementation of treatment and I'm supporting the appropriate behaviors in all of my different patient groups, I can eradicate the disease without even the need for a cure. And that brings me to a little bit of a point. The clinical development has come so far in the treatment prevention, which we can come on to, but treatment of HIV, that if I'm a mother, I don't pass it on to my unborn child. If I have unprotected sex, I don't pass it on to a recipient provided I'm compliant. It's come so far that the questions we now need to start asking ourselves are more around the social side of things, more around the implementation that we do with the drugs and less perhaps around some of the forms of treatment that we have because the ones that we have are so good. So, so there's different examples that will surface and we can talk about them in a little bit more detail, but even in the most developed of markets, there are still issues related to biases that a physician or a patient might have about themselves when it comes to race, when it comes to gender, when it comes to sexual preference or sexuality. And overcoming some of these and reaching some of the populations that may not even know that they are at risk of having HIV or having HIV and getting the treatments to them quickly so that they can suppress the disease and not pass it on, I think is a bigger question, a bigger opportunity to really fight the pandemic than actually even getting um, to the cure side of it. It's a, it's a really interesting and compelling perspective, Mark. Um, you touch on this whole societal aspect and the challenges there. Can you, can you give some examples and, and what you see as the implications of that? Yeah, so I mean, quote from um, IAS, so the International um, AIDS Symposium from 2019. Um, they presented some data back then um, looking at the availability of prophylactic treatment to different groups in the U.S., um, and we'll talk a little bit more in a moment about what prophylactic treatment means um, and how that's changing the, the, the 
surface of HIV. Um, but essentially, the studies showed that if I am a Caucasian male, a man who has sex with man, uh, in the US, the chances of me being given access to prophylactic treatment are twice as high than if I am a Caucasian female, or if I am an African American or Hispanic man. That's all other things being equal in the circumstances, though, the background of that individual, the education of that individual, all other circumstances being leveled out. That's quite a stark difference. And that's before we even get into attitudes that might have an even more macro effect beyond the interaction between an HCP and a patient, but maybe from a national level. So attitudes towards HIV or homosexuality in certain markets make access to the medication or the prevention, preventative medicine almost impossible. Attitudes towards unprotected sex, masculinity, et cetera, in other parts of the world mean that preventative measures aren't taken as well. So you have this whole dynamic that can be very interesting and challenging, even in the most developed of countries, and then really, really challenging and driven through the infrastructure of a particular country uh, in, in many other ones around the world. I think it's worth noting that, um, you know, as, as some of the issues that Mark's exploring here, even if we think about HIV AIDS in the developed world, we've made a ton of progress over the last 30, 40 years, but there are still those pockets that Mark's describing where people living with HIV or at risk of HIV don't have access to the therapies or treatments that could really help them. But of course, as we move to the underdeveloped world or the, the undeveloped countries in the world, you see obviously huge inability to really help prevent HIV, to treat HIV with people that, uh, that contract it. And I think so the, the amount of unmet need around the world is still extremely high. And it's interesting, not all of that unmet need is associated with the lack of clinically relevant, effective therapies. A lot of it is about getting those therapies to patients, making sure people have access to them. So I think there's a lot of work to be done as Mark was highlighting. And I think one of the areas that we started to touch on, but now maybe can come back to a bit more in solving some of these problems is the prophylactic treatments, inverted commas, for people who are at risk of contracting HIV. And you can think of pills that you take daily, very analogous to birth control pills that people can take, but if they take on a regular basis and are highly compliant will mean again, that they will not contract HIV, even if they come into contact with somebody who um, has the disease. And the ability to take that and then to drive that across a large population has been credited in many markets, many countries with taking a huge step to control and start to diminish the impact of the pandemic. And we're getting to the point with some of the medicines that are available, even in this space, where they are now reaching cost-effective price points and being available to a large number of people, which A, has a big positive impact, but then B, that there are new technologies that are coming on, new modalities also in prophylactic treatment, longer-acting um, approaches to the medication, which can mean not only a different alternative for people who were previously taking the prophylactic treatment, but also perhaps I can open up new populations and start to help stop the spread in new populations where there might be even higher risk of transmission of HIV. You know, in the last year with COVID, we've talked a lot about, particularly last year when it was sort of really spiking and we didn't have the vaccine, et cetera. We talked a lot about the concept of flattening the curve. And something like a long-acting injectable or longer-acting modalities of treatment in prophylactic treatment, you can take a high-risk population, you can deploy um, the prophylaxis there, and 
I might not completely eradicate it, but I flatten the curve of transition, which then makes it more manageable, which then makes me more time to get education and other infrastructure um, approaches out there to then reduce the transmission disease, manage it at a national or, or global level. So I think this is an interesting um, uh, further development in the last 10 years on the prophylactic front and now in the last few years on the longer acting on the longer acting front. You know, it's an interesting point as you talk more about the, the prophylactic and how that's actually enabled by, you know, the decrease in cost of therapy. Thinking ahead about, you know, the, the new therapies that are in development, um, what does that mean for the, the value and the return to the healthcare system as they're evaluating these as treatment options? Where are they fitting in and how is this going to compare to other high cost areas? Jen, so I think this is one of the interesting challenges in HIV uh, as new options come to market, whether for prophylaxis or for uh, cure and treatment. So in many of the developed markets, I think health systems are starting to see HIV as sort of a solved problem clinically. As mentioned before, the therapies that are available to patients today are very, very effective and relatively tolerable and free of side effects in the grand scheme of things. So from a health system perspective, it can feel that this is a solved problem, whereas they may perceive much higher unmet need in other categories, various um, types of oncology and hematological malignancies getting a lot of attention, of course. So I think that's, that's a challenge is when new modalities, new therapies are coming to market, making sure that the value is clear. And for some of these uh, therapies, it is very much going to be about helping people living with HIV to find the therapy that works for them to adhere to for a long time. Because obviously the, the treatment until we have a cure or until we have a treatment that, uh, that really eradicates, uh, eradicates the disease, folks will have to comply with and take their therapies for quite a long time. So that, that notion of individualized treatment to serve that person living with HIV the best is critically important. And there's value there that's a difficult value to convince a health system of. I think some of the others will perhaps have a little less uh, trouble convincing on value. I think if there was a, a highly effective and safe vaccine for HIV prevention, I think obviously we've seen the power of a vaccine at scale through COVID. And I think that's, that's obviously something where I think the value could be, could be made clear. Um, there's always, unfortunately, going to be remaining unmet need for patients who don't succeed on the existing therapies and new therapies, where for those patients or those people whose HIV continues to progress despite currently available therapies, there will probably continue to need to be investment in those therapies that come you know, second, third, fourth line for those patients who really need something if they're advancing on current, uh, current therapies. So I think that's also a clear case where the value becomes very clear to help those people living with advanced disease. In terms of prophylaxis, I think there, there is challenge in the value there, but I think as Mark highlighted, it really is about flattening the curve, reducing transmission. And I think sometimes when the, when the impact is a public health impact, it's, it's a bit more difficult to quantify. And I think the, so those are some of the challenges in justifying the value of, of uh, newer therapies, newer modalities that uh, manufacturers will face. I think if we talk about unmet needs, stigma remains mental burden of having HIV, a mental burden of a 20-year-old having to take some sort of treatment for 80 years, let's say, till they, till they pass away, 100, you know, remains. Um, and so there are still areas of unmet need within HIV. The other big area of unmet need is the populations that either don't know they're at risk, don't know they have HIV, or don't have access to the best treatments and medication. That these things, one could argue, with the amazing treatments that are already out there, 
with the exception of a few people that Bill referenced who unfortunately would still progress through to um, heavily being heavily treated and experienced in HIV, these things largely can be solved with the medications that we have. So one could argue at a category level, this is a social problem and not a clinical problem anymore. And therefore that the investment that's required doesn't necessarily need to be as high. However, one could also argue that in order to reach these populations, in order to reduce the mental burden and the stigma associated with HIV, the best way to do that is to switch up the modality of the treatment, to switch up how the treatment is delivered so that it can access that broader group. So auto-injectors or long-acting injectables or even orals that last five, ten times longer than they do today. And so the question is, do I approach this from the science to solve the challenge or do I approach it from the social side? And obviously the answer is some combination of the two. And it's up to you know, the major players to convince the budget holders of the value um, of their offerings when it comes to um, challenging this, uh, this disease. It's an important angle that you bring in, right? Like the care goes beyond just the therapy and the management of it to this wider and more complex social challenge. What, what's being done to tackle it? What are we seeing across the industry and across geographies? So a couple of different examples. Um, one organization has, uh, that I'm aware of is heavily focused on implementation science. And so thinking about different partnerships, organizations, public and private, to get medications out to people, but also further up the funnel, if you will, of patients with awareness, diagnosis, education, trying to get intercept patients who are living or people who could potentially be patients living their normal lives to get tested, to become aware of the fact that they might be at risk and, and move from there into perhaps into the care system if they need to be brought into the care system. So there's a whole bunch in that area. There've been some specific deals that have been done to get a high volume of medication um, out to some of the larger, more developing markets at cost or close to cost. So there's been a, a big push to just drive spread and access that's still a long way when you actually get the drug to the market, actually then to the people, there's still a big challenge there, but there's been steps taken by organizations to go down that path. And I think increasingly we're seeing an investment and an appreciation for some of these biases that exist and an investment in how to overcome them. So understanding the behavioral science behind why someone might think more of HIV as a male disease versus a female disease, which females miss out on, on treatment. And that comes both from the patient who may be unaware and from the physician who is sort of looking at a patient and trying to make some assessments with their best judgment on how best to, to handle them. And so I think these are some of the areas, but you've got some really interesting challenges. So it's very easy for me, if I'm running a clinical trial for a prophylactic treatment for a Caucasian educated man who has sex with another man, to recruit patients into the trial. The patients understand what's going on. They understand the value that could potentially come from the treatment. They will go into the trial. They will take the medication. I can get the evidence that this works. It's much harder if I believe that I've got a target population of adolescent females who might be at risk of contracting HIV. And I want to recruit them for a trial when they don't have HIV and then prove the value of the prophylactic treatment in a trial. How do you convince somebody that they are at risk in that kind of category and then make sure that they come into that trial and then measure the impact that, they, that they're having from the treatment they have. And that's the challenge I think that we need to kind of also get to overcoming. We know that there's these at-risk groups. How do we make them aware that they're at risk? And then how do we bring them through the trial process so that then they can have access to medicines that have been proven to work on them? 
think maybe one other thing to highlight, I think for the last few decades, the battle in HIV has really been against the virus, figuring out how to bring the right medicines or right combination of medicines that um, get you to an amazing viral response, a low viral load um, in people living with HIV. And that's largely been accomplished through the amazing therapies that are, that are available today. The battle has now shifted from that battle against the virus to the battle against the social and political conditions that are causing HIV to still be something that spreads in many communities around the world and many markets around the world. So as we think about solving the problems, I think this is unfortunately where the science perhaps was a, a common approach to the disease around the world. The next step is not going to be common around the world. It's going to need to be digging into the local market to really understand what are the remaining unmet needs that exist in HIV? What are the drivers of continued transmission in your market? What are the underlying social political dynamics that are hindering the ability to prevent the spread? Um, what's the healthcare system's attitude towards HIV and their willingness to fund, whether it's uh, implementation science interventions or funding of prophylactic and, and treatment therapies? And so I think all of these questions on the table are quite complex at a market level. And I think that's where the engagement needs to go is how is, as manufacturers, NGOs, um, other interested parties, how do you engage in a healthcare market to really understand what the issues are to then tailor the right solution to solve the remaining unmet needs there. So we've unfortunately moving from a battle against a virus that was a very scientific battle to a, a much more complicated battle to really eradicate HIV. And there's this interesting kind of juxtaposition of two macro themes as to how you do this that Bill kind of mentions. There's this very specific and tailored approach, and you could talk about that at a country level. It looks very different in sub-Saharan Africa till it would do in the UK, for example. But you could also talk about that at a patient level. There are two routes to sort of solving the problem. One is, I would say, simplification and mass market. There are a number of really good drugs. Get them out there, make them as accessible to patients as possible by moving away from specialty care towards treatment that can make it available in the community at different sites to make it as easy to get HIV treatment as it is to get prophylactic pill or Viagra or something. The other route is to say, well, actually, there are some very specific issues that very specific patients face, whether it be progressing a long time with the disease and needing some very different treatments because they're heavily treatment experienced, or whether it be moving from an oral to a long-acting injectable the mental burden of taking a pill every day is so huge or the lifestyle just won't permit it. And that means that you're therefore not protecting yourself and protecting others by being on the or having so many medications that you've taken for such a period of time that drug-drug interactions, when you start to contract other diseases and pick up issues later in life, start to come into play as well. So you've got this juxtaposition. Do I go down this very simple access to all couple of pills, make it very, very easy approach? Or do you say this still needs to be specialist-led, it still needs to be incredibly tailored to the individual patient because there's all of these other needs that are still in existence today? So we, we've touched on uh, a lot of different themes, this idea of moving away from science as, as kind of being the answer to looking more broadly at the more complex social, political, environmental context. With that in mind, what advice would you have to industry players on how they can continue to evolve and progress HIV management. Bill? Jen, good question. I think my advice would be to recognize the shift in the battlefield against HIV from a scientific battle against the virus to a broader battle against the dynamics that cause the virus to continue to spread and be difficult to treat and eradicate. 
So I think what that means is as a player in the HIV space, whether you're a manufacturer or an advocacy group or an NGO, I think it's building the right alliance on a market by market basis to really dig in and understand what are the remaining unmet needs in a particular market and what's the coalition and the science we need to bring together to solve those unmet needs. It likely involves medicines, different kinds of medicines, perhaps new medicines, but also involves lots of uh, implementation science and working through the social dynamics locally that are causing the disease to continue to spread. So I think that's a difficult, but important, I think, in this next journey of eradicating HIV. And I think maybe building on that, when we're trying to affect change at some point in time, we look at pushing things from lots of different angles. And I think there are a few different angles in which um, the industry can try to impact this disease by changing the points of care of delivery. So pushing more into the community and making the simple effective drugs that are already available, more available to more people in a more quick and accessible way that can potentially remove some of the stigma from being treated on a daily pill to then optimizing sites of care for long acting injectables, either in particular centers that can deploy it for a very long time. So it almost becomes prophylactically like a vaccine in and of itself or a very small part of your life if you're being treated for HIV or bringing that point of care to the home with things like auto injectors. So moving the sites of care and the points of care around, but in lots of different ways to tackle, to tackle these problems. Um, the second point is, I don't think actually that the science goes away, it's just the science changes. Changes from clinical science to behavioral science and implementation science. And if we think about that shift from clinical to implementation, then maybe we have to think about how we focus on the disease versus focusing more holistically on infectious diseases in general. You know, I think since the 1980s, the companies that have really started to tackle HIV have been successful because whether it be a company themselves or a business unit, they've really in a single-minded way focused on HIV. And that's got us to where we are, which is absolutely incredible. But I'm wondering in the next generation, because the discussion is changing into these different areas, I think maybe the focus of some of the organizations has to move from the single-minded HIV focus to a broader and more holistic focus across infectious diseases um, and the like. Thank you, Bill and Mark. So looking back, science has really brought us so far in HIV. And while it's gotten us here, we are gonna need more than science to continue to bring impact to patients across the globe. The next step in improving the lives of people with HIV and those at risk of contracting HIV is gonna involve a wider societal and political shift to drive changes at the country level. It's not gonna be a one-size-fits-all solution nor driven only by healthcare providers or drug manufacturers, but instead a strong collaboration across a very diverse range of players to drive this impact. That's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma Podcast. <music>